All right, so um, last Sunday had an interesting experience over the weekend going back to a place that Amy and I met, really. We, we met in Spring Hill, Tennessee. Um, that's where we lived. Amy's family moved there in kind of the mid to late 90s. Um, I was there by about 1999. And we lived there pretty much the entire time before we moved to Knoxville in 2016. And so driving through town, it's always a strange experience when you go back somewhere. Um, do you guys, do y'all do the same thing I do where in your mind you picture it exactly the way you left it? Like it could be relationships with people. It could be a location. You know, friends of mine that I know, their kids have been growing over the last five years just like mine have been. But I see their kids and I'm shocked, you know, when I see them. It's like, oh, you're not still there. You're here. Maybe you're even taller than me now. And so we're driving through Spring Hill and like it just continues to grow and explode. It's been a really fast growing little town. And so I was, I was looking this up this week because I was trying to remember, um, you know, how many people were there when we first moved there. And this was just kind of crazy to me how much things have changed in a short period of time. So when I moved to Spring Hill, it was rural Tennessee. Lots of hills, you'd see little farms. The main little highway was just a two-lane road that went through town. There was one like blinking light as you were getting ready to move into Spring Hill coming down from Franklin. And then when you got kind of through town, there was like maybe one more traffic light. And so when I moved to Spring Hill, near this traffic light, there was one McDonald's, there's one Sonic, because you got to have a Sonic. I mean, we're in the South after all. There's one Sonic, and there's a Food Lion, no Kroger, right? That's it. That's all that's there. So I was looking this up. In 1990, 1,400 people lived in Spring Hill, 1,400 people in 1990. By the time I moved there um, in 2007, so I'd been there for about a year, it was right at 7,000 people. So just in that decade, it had grown from about 1,500 to 7,000 people. By 2010, another decade, there were 29,000 people living in Spring Hill. And now, as of 2020, it's up to 48,000 plus. That's like mind-boggling. I mean, it's a bustling little city now. And so, you know, it's just, we all kind of know that sense that like things don't really stay the same. They change. And there's this sense of nostalgia where like we, we want to capture these moments that just felt perfect. You know, like when I, when I think back to, to childhood, I have this picture of like what home means and what it represents. And, you know, I remember like a really fun holiday that we had or whatever. But the truth is like none of our home lives were ever perfect. It was never the Id- idyllic image that we hold. And so even the things that we long for not to change they've often been kind of marked by our perspective and nostalgia. They're not as great as we thought they were. And even if they were wonderful, we can't grab and hold things and keep them that way. Life changes, the world changes, and the truth is we do too. Now, much of what we see that changes in this world, it it can be changed for the worse. It can feel like it's changed for the worse. It often is. That's part of the result of sin entering this world and breaking it. Things things break down. They deteriorate. This physical body has changed a lot in the last 20 years during that same time frame. And I'm not thrilled with all the changes that have transpired along the way. Like we get older, we break down. But here's the beauty of our God. And, And this is what I want us to invite us into thinking about this morning, okay? So we're in this series called The Hidden Kingdom and recognizing that, that God has intervened. He's, he's entered this fallen, broken world and he's shown up to make everything new, to redeem it all. That's who Jesus is. That's what he does. And so several weeks back, the last time I preached, it's been almost a month now, I think it has been, we talked about following Jesus And one of the primary things that's going on as we follow Jesus is he's moving us towards what he's always intended for us. There's a life in him that he's always intended for us. But our brokenness and the brokenness of this world has ripped us off from that. And so as we follow him, 
he's, he's bringing change into our lives here and now, but guys, he's preparing us for the glorious future that he has for us. That's what he's doing. And so we know that he has heaven for us and eternity and all the glories of that. And there's no more hurt. There's no more pain. There's no more illness, all of those things. But I feel like what often can get lost in our Christian lives is, you know, the gospel is get saved. I'm going to heaven. And now I'm just like holding on for dear life till we get there. But the truth is God wants us to experience his life, his kingdom right here, right now. He wants to bring good, healthy, needed change in our life. But it's often not going to feel healthy in the moment. It's often going to feel uncomfortable, frustrating, might even feel like it's a negative thing. And so what I want to do, friends, is is I want to talk to you really quickly about three things this morning. I want to make sure that we all understand the call to change. Jesus loves us and meets us right where we are. That is absolutely true. We don't have to earn his love. We come as we are to him. That is an accurate representation of love, that it takes us as we are. The problem is, We have settled for broken versions of what love is. We've adopted the world's view of what love is, maybe not even realizing it. And we forget that like love can be difficult too. Love at its core is sacrificial. And so God loves us enough that he invites us or calls us to change. And so we're gonna look at the call of change. Then we're gonna look at the cost of change. And then finally, right near the end, we're going to look at the way to change. There's some tangible, specific things that God equips us with to help us grow and change. So, we ready for this? Y'all with me? Y'all with me online? All right, here we go. Number one, the call to change. The call to change is very simply love's invitation. So, I want to take you to the story of the rich young ruler this morning. It's one of my favorite stories in the scripture I probably preach on it, you know, once every couple of years almost. It's just such a powerful story about this this young guy who, by all accounts, he's he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's lived a good life. He has a good reputation in the community. He's wealthy. And, And he approaches Jesus expressing a desire to be right with God and have eternal life. He's asking Jesus, what is the way for me to experience eternal life and be right with God? And so Jesus begins to have a conversation with this young man. By all accounts, he's very genuine. How can I be right with God? And so Jesus lists some of the commandments, right? He points him to the law. Hey, listen, here's some different commandments. What do they say about how we love each other and all that? And the guy hears those commandments, hears Jesus' lists, and he goes, yeah. He goes, man, I've done that since my youth. So let's pick up the story right there. Mark 10, verse 20. He says to Jesus, teacher, All of these, talking about the commandments that Jesus brought up, all of these I've kept from my youth. So he's feeling really good, but you also can still tell there's a little bit of a question there. You know, it's like, wait, I've already done that, but I sense that something's missing. Verse 21, and Jesus looking at him, what does it say? Loved him. Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Guys, Jesus' invitation to change. Jesus' straight talk that points out in a very real and direct way what needs to be addressed. It's anchored in his love for us. It doesn't say Jesus was ready to burn him. You know, Jesus was ready to show him like, oh, you think you got it all figured out? No, you don't. And like, he couldn't wait to, you know, hold up the mirror. No, Jesus looked at him in love. And friends, the invitation to change is connected with the invitation to follow him. He said, look, this is what's blocking you. You know, you feel it deep down somewhere, you know something is in the way. And so lovingly, I'm gonna tell you the truth. 
and invite you to realize you can change. You can choose to set that aside and you can follow me. Friends, throughout Scripture, Jesus calls people to follow him. And throughout Scripture, the call to follow Jesus always included change. We do some discipleship training here at the church. Many of you have already heard this from me before. And in our discipleship training, one of the primary things we talk about is, what is a disciple? Like, if we don't know what a disciple is, how can I become one? And Jesus defines it clearly in Scripture. One of the easiest places to see it is when he called the very first disciples. He said, follow me, and I will make you into something. I'm going to change you. Follow me, be changed, I'll make you into fishers of men. He calls us into mission, okay? Next Sunday's message is about the mission. Today, I'm talking to us about change. When Jesus calls us to follow him, that invitation, it's personal, it's tangible, it's to know him, it's to experience his love. It's rooted in a loving invitation, but he calls us to change. He makes it clear up front, this is gonna affect your life. Now, just so you don't think I'm taking like one random story out of scripture to draw on this, look at what Jesus said to his disciples. Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone, we don't need a special Greek dictionary translation for this word. Anyone means anyone. If anyone would come after me or follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's going to require change, and guess what? It's going to be painful. Well, there's a sweet promise from Jesus. Great. But listen, it's true. It's going to be painful. The cross is tough. But, but this invitation, again, it's rooted in love. Look at verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, I, I don't want to move too quickly past this. Jesus' invitation to grow and change us, we, we've got to understand what the foundation of that is. The foundation of his call to change is rooted in love because he knows something that we either don't know or we choose to ignore. And that is when we are left to our own purposes, our own aims, when we live life apart from the God who made us, that life will betray us. That life will already fail. It's doomed to fail. And so the parts of us that we don't want to be touched, the parts of us where we've been wounded, we've been hurt, the parts of us that we know need to grow and change, but maybe we feel like we can't change. Maybe we feel like I'm just, I'm, I'm gonna be stuck dealing with this the rest of my life. Maybe we don't wanna change. Maybe there's things that, man, I enjoy aiming my life this way and pursuing those things. In love, Jesus says, if you try to hold on to that life, you're gonna lose it. So my invitation is you can willingly choose to lay it down. You can willingly choose to step into the life of following me that will involve sacrifice. It will be hard. It will be painful. But it's going to be good. It's going to be good. And it's the only way you're going to experience real life. And so, friends, maybe the only thing you need to hear this morning is, is simply this idea. That change, while painful, it is necessary and it is beneficial. And we are brought into that change, carried along by a loving God. Carried along by the power of Jesus. He changes us. He grows us. He's with us during the process. But please make no mistake, following Jesus is a call to change. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, 
is not just like that once in our life we will say yes to Jesus' invitation, but that we would actually position our lives in such a way to say, God, I wanna have an encounter with your love today. God, today, on a random Thursday morning, God, on that day when I wake up, here I am. Lord, what, what needs to be crucified today? What do I need to lay down at your feet today? I trust you. You are a loving, good God. And as much as it may hurt or be painful, as much as I'm holding on to these lies that it's not worth it, <laughs> it'll be better if I hold on to this. God, the truth is I choose to believe that you love me and it's for my benefit and I'm gonna say yes. I'm gonna say yes. That's the call to change. Now, it is vitally important that if we're gonna answer the call to change, that we count the cost of change. This is what I love about Jesus. As much as he says hard things, he tells us the truth. See, that's, that's the power of change. It's really, it's truth challenging us. It's us having an encounter with truth. And so Jesus actually invites us as we start this journey with him, as we're walking along with him, he invites us to consider the cost. He says, this, this is gonna be costly. Ponder it, weigh it, consider it. Be aware that you're stepping into something difficult. And so we're gonna kind of walk through Luke chapter 14 together this morning. We'll, we'll look at it a couple different times along the way, but let's start in Luke chapter 14, reading in verse 27, okay? And then just sort of hold your place there because we'll refer back to this a few times. So in Luke 14, verse 27, there's, there's, this is one of those times where there's just a lot of people around Jesus. The crowd is gathered around him. Um, some of the folks that were kind of opposed to him are there. His disciples are there. And then all those people kind of in between, you know, they're curious about him. Maybe they've heard a teaching of his. Maybe they've seen a miracle. Maybe they've even experienced a miracle themselves. And they're just checking him out. So all these people are gathered around. And he's talking to all these people. And and he knows they're interested in him. That's the thing. He knows they're curious. And this is what he calls them to do. Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Can I just tell you, there are very few churches in America who use that as their model for church growth. Right, we, we've had this explosion in the last 20, maybe even 30 years, what we call seeker-friendly churches. Now listen, I'm not knocking some huge components of what they say because our life in Jesus has got to be rooted in his open, loving invitation that whosoever will come to him can be saved. And that it is by his grace alone that I'm rescued and saved and redeemed. It is all rooted in him. But a lot of the American gospel has left out the full story. <laughs> and the, the invitation of Jesus is that we can be saved. Well, why do we need to be saved? Because we're a mess. We're broken. We're a mess. We need changing. And, and forget the we for a minute. I need changing. That guy in the mirror needs help and needs change. And so connected with Jesus' invitation is the real truth that to experience the fullness of what he has for us, the life he has for us, it's gonna involve sacrifice. And he says, you should count the cost. So verse 28, he gives them an example of this. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Do I have enough money to even do this? Am I willing to work hard and fundraise and do all the stuff I need to do to pull off this goal? Whether he has enough to complete it, he says. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and he was not able to finish. Friends, I think sadly there are far too many Christians in our society who have reached a stuck place. We've been compelled by the love of Jesus. We've heard at least part of the gospel message We've recognized some places where we want and need him to come into our lives and we've said yes. But I think for many of us, 
we've never made that transition to use, to use some Bible words here for a minute. We've taken Jesus as our Savior, but maybe we forgot along the way or maybe, maybe we never knew we needed to. We forgot to take him as our Lord. We forgot to let him be the ruler and king of our lives. And so we're like the man who started building a tower and we got the foundation laid and then we're stuck and we're not making progress and we can't figure out why. And it's like, well, because there's still some cost associated to experience what God has for you. Like, are you giving him your life? Are you laying your life down? The glorious exchange is I get him in return. I get the fullness of the life he has for me in return. But like, I gotta be honest about the cost. I have to lay something down to receive back what he has. The the cross is an invitation to come to Jesus. The cross says he's done for me what I can't do for myself. But the cross also invites us to get up on it with him, to die to ourselves so that we can find how to truly live. And so Jesus says, count the cost. Now, in the context of Jesus saying this, he has just finished telling this story. And he's been telling a story about an incredible banquet, the meal of a lifetime. And there's this guy in town who wants to throw this banquet and he wants everyone to come. And so he prepared ahead of time. He sent out invitations. People RSVP'd and said, we're coming and the whole town's excited and ready, and, and they know it's coming, and they've said yes to this open invitation that's available to everyone. In fact, the story goes on to say, he was like, go into like the highways and the byways, find the homeless, find the injured, find the rejects, everyone's welcome. And so the day of the great banquet has arrived, and the call goes out, it's time to come to the banquet. And really simply, in Luke 14, 18, we see everyone's response to coming to this wonderful banquet. But they all alike began to make excuses. Now the story goes on to describe some of the different excuses they were coming up with, but everybody had a reason, a distraction, something that demanded their attention, something that was a little bit more important, and none of them came to the banquet that was available. And it is in that context that then Jesus says, unless you'll pick up your cross, you can't be my disciple. The loving invitation has been made. There's a feast available to us. But friends, Jesus told this story for a reason. Because when it comes time to change, the excuses come out. Maybe that's just me. But I bet if you're honest with yourself, you've recognized times, maybe you even started the process of change. I know this needs to be addressed in my life. And then the excuses come out. Now, I am not about to give you an exhaustive list of all of the potential excuses, but I do want to give us some examples so that maybe we can consider some ways that we get ripped off from experiencing the change God wants to bring in our life. And so Jesus addressed our excuses. We already looked at an example of it with the rich young ruler, right? Jesus has a way of asking questions, telling stories, and putting his finger on certain things in our life that lets us know right there is the spot. That's the spot. And he does it in love always, but he he challenges us with truth our innate desire to protect ourselves, our innate desire to avoid change, when we're trying to avoid, when we're trying to make excuses, Jesus shows up lovingly and he says, here's the truth, what are you gonna do? And so let me give you a couple of examples. The first example I wanna give you is what I like to call the what about this? The what about this excuse? This is one of the ways that we avoid change. Let me give you an example of it. Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 12. Jesus went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. Here's a guy that needs healing. 
Jesus in a synagogue. Why? Because it's, it's the Sabbath. And they asked him, the religious people present asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now think about this. There's a real practical, like this isn't an example. This isn't a story. This isn't a concept. There's a person here, a person that they know in their community who has a withered hand. It's affecting his ability to work, whatever. They're aware of this guy. They know this person. This real living person needs help. They even have come to know that Jesus heals people. So they know that the God who heals is present. They know that their friend is there with a withered hand. And do they want to see help and growth and change come to this guy? No, they want to turn into a philosophical discussion. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus, what about this? What about people that think like this? What about people that live this way? What about those hypocrites over there? Not me, not what's going on in my heart, not what's going on in my life. What about that? What about that situation? What's your view on this topic? Right? A lot of our Christian activity and thought and conversation is about external concepts. Like I need to have the right opinion on all these things. And if I've got the right opinion on those things, that really helps me feel pretty secure about where I sit because I agree with all the right things and I disagree with all the wrong things. And that's exactly where I should be. And it's nothing more than a veiled attempt to not allow real change to penetrate our lives. What about this? Well, we know Jesus. He's not letting them off the hook. So they ask, what about this? And what does he say? Verse 11. He said to them, which one of you? Did you catch that? I'm not going to have a philosophical conversation with you about whether it's right to heal on the Sabbath. Let's talk about you for a minute. Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Because technically that's work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But you have an injured sheep that just fell into a pit. Which one of you is not going to lift it out? Verse 12. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus cuts through this broad philosophical question designed to just guard and protect myself, and he gets right to the issue. What about you? What about you? Reflect on yourself. Jesus doesn't allow us to sit back and talk about other situations. He invites us to self-reflection. What does this mean for me? Where do I stand? What needs to be addressed in my life? Okay, the next one. It's a close cousin to what about this? The next excuse making that, that we do is what about them? What about them? Not just what about this? What about these ideas out here? What about them? What about that person over there? Now, I'm sure you've never experienced this. It's probably just me. But you know, you know that moment when you're, maybe you're even at a Sunday morning service and the preacher's preaching and you're hearing what he's saying and man, you are agreeing with it and it's right on because it is exactly what that person right there needs to be hearing. And I am thrilled they're here this morning. Or I know they're not here this morning and I can't wait to send them a link to the podcast because they just got to hear that because it'll change their life. That's just me that does that, right? Hearing those things that you just know someone else needs to hear. I wonder how many times in my life I've been hearing exactly the thing I needed to hear and I'm just so quick with that shield that it's like, oh, that needs to go right there. Oh, that needs to land over there. What about them? Check this out. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 3, and then we'll skip down to verses 6 through 9. You can read the, the full story on your own. Matthew 15. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? 
Why are your disciples doing that over there? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Verse 3, Jesus answered them. And notice, he answers them not with an answer, but with a question. And he answered them, and why do you? Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He holds back up that mirror. You're trying to deflect to them. What about you? You do this very thing that you're accusing other people of. Are you willing to self-reflect? And then verse 6, he gets a little deeper into this. Let's Let's let him talk to us this morning. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips. They got all the right answers. They can point out all the places where other people need to change or where this is wrong over here. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We're focused on all the wrong things and we're forgetting the one thing that matters. Have I given him access to this? Will I let Jesus cut through all of my desires for avoidance, all of my excuses to change, all of the ways that I focus and deflect on other things, and will, will I let him speak to me? Will I let truth penetrate my life? Guys, I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. I wonder how many of our conversations with friends of ours, how many of our life groups even at times, turn into conversations about all these big picture things and we avoid the the deeper truth of like, what's going on with me and Jesus? What's he saying to me? What do I need to hear? How do I need to grow? Like guys, I've sat around with friends and I've analyzed the problems of the world. Do you know within the last year, just in conversations with my friends, I've solved the COVID crisis, totally solved it. I've dealt with systematic racism. I know the answers to solve the political unrest in our country. I've completely dealt with the left-wing liberal media bias and the extreme right-wing social media-fueled conspiracy theories. I've solved all of it. You know what's weird? Nothing's changed. (laughs) Nothing has changed. I haven't solved anything. I'm not saying we shouldn't have thoughtful opinions on these issues. I just think we distract ourselves with a bunch of other nonsense that's not going to change anything. You know what life I'm responsible for? This one. You know what this world needs? It needs changed people who've been radically touched by the love of Jesus who are being forgiven of their sin, who are being renewed and made whole so that more and more of us can have an encounter with real love. Jesus is changing us for a mission. That's what we're getting to next week. But we gotta change. And so how about I start with that guy right there in the mirror? We're so focused on all the problems that we see, all the things going wrong in our country and all the people who have just the right thoughts and just the right solutions to solve all those problems. And you know what? There have always been problems and there always will be problems. But Jesus loves me and he cares about me and he can bring about needed, healthy change. And it might hurt. In fact, it probably will. But it's a hurt that heals. It's not not the kind of, of hurt that you get from like an accident. It's the kind of hurt you receive from a skilled surgeon who says, yeah, it's going to be painful to get this incision, but it's going to be really good for you that I remove the cancer. And on the other side of this, you might have a scar from dealing with that problem, but you're going to go forward into longer life and health because you submitted yourself to the skilled physician who knows how to heal. Guys, that's what change is about. We have a skilled physician who loves us, who knows the truth and speaks the truth and he'll cut through the garbage if we'll let him, if we'll let him. The real question is, am I willing to be changed by truth? I want you to consider the possibility that maybe we focus more. And and I, I wanna say it like this, but I'm preaching to myself, so I don't want to sound like I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me. 
But I want you personally to consider the possibility that we focus most on the parts of the truth that already agree with me. I'm thrilled to read the scripture verses, follow the Instagram stories, share the little Bible memes of all the verses that I already agree with, that don't challenge me in any way. But am I willing to sit with the truth that disagrees with me? Am I willing to sit with the truth that challenges me to grow and change? I'm not saying every day of your walk with Jesus is gonna be hard and be a a radical, complete turnaround. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that, that we are broken people that are in the process of growing and changing in Jesus. And so I would encourage you to consider this. If your walk with Jesus is not regularly challenging and changing you, Who's really in charge? I'm gonna say that again. If your personal walk with Jesus is not regularly challenging you and changing you, then I think you should strongly consider the question, who's really in charge? Do I talk to him about changing the circumstances I want to see change? I mean, we should do that. A big part of prayer is asking him to heal and touch situations. But is, is my primary focus on, I know what needs to change around me and I'm asking him to change those things? Or am I saying, Jesus, you know what needs to change in me. How can I cooperate with you? That's the real question. All right, let's go ahead and move now to the way of change. The way of change, all right? No, I, I don't want to skip this. We'll take two extra minutes on this. Okay, the rich young ruler. All right, I want to return back to this guy. Mark chapter 10. Okay, remember Jesus looked at him and loved him. Because I want you to see the thing he does here with the rich young ruler is what he's always doing with us. Mark chapter 10, 21. We're going to pick it up where it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have Give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had a great many possessions. Jesus put his finger on the core issue and what Jesus touched in love, what Jesus touched was what that guy really loved. And in this instance, that guy wasn't willing to lay it down in order to follow Jesus. Look what he says here now, verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Going on, verse 24. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus will put his finger on what we treasure the most what we treasure the most. Because what we treasure the most, that determines the whole aim of our life. And it then justifies all of our behaviors as we pursue that aim in life. And so that's what leads Jesus to say extreme things like, unless you hate your father and mother and sister and brother, you can't follow me. Does he literally want us to hate our closest relationships? No, he's just willing to put his finger on the things that we worship ahead of him. The worst thing I could do for my wife, Amy, is to love her more than I love Jesus. The worst thing I could do is to be willing to compromise and neglect my walk with the Lord in order to love her because then it's a false love. He teaches me the way of love. He helps me love her right. Everything lines up when he's first. And I don't even mean like it's a ranking system. I mean, he's the core of everything. I base my life on the one who loves me and who will teach me how to love others well. Because if Amy is my aim, I've made an idol out of her. And she can't possibly live up to that. If I make her my primary focus, that's not a wonderful love story. I'm putting her in a position to fail. 
she will let me down, and I will let her down. As I'm trying to make her the priority and love her well, I will blow it, and I will let her down. Jesus lovingly is willing to put his finger right on the things that we aim at and say, that spot was made for me. You were made to be in right relationship with the God who created you. And all of your other relationships in this world will will be broken. They will not function properly unless you put me where I belong. Am Am I willing to let Jesus point out where I'm aiming and how it's off track? All right, last thing, we'll wrap things up here. We've talked about the cost of change. We've talked about the invitation of change. It all comes together right here, the way of change. The way of change is these other two things working together, okay? The way of change is about embracing truth in love. The way of change is about embracing truth in love. As Jesus is wrapping up um, this moment with his disciples where they've watched this rich young ruler come along and then leave unhappy, they're like astonished. They're like, what hope do we all have? Verse 26 of Mark chapter 10. And they were exceedingly astonished, and Jesus, and they said to him, they said to Jesus, then who can be saved? What hope do we have? This seems impossible. And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. The change that needs to happen in us, it's impossible if we're trying to do this on our own. He says, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Friends, what I'm about to say next, don't let it bounce off of you because you've heard it a million times. Let the reality of this sink in. The way of change is real relationship with God. Jesus doesn't just have truth that he can share with you. He is truth. He said, I'm the way. We talked about that when we talked about following him. He also said, I'm the truth. We need real, living interaction with the God who is love and the God who is truth in order to embrace the way of change. If I'm in real relationship with Jesus, then I am inviting him him in to talk, to speak, to have his way. I'm inviting him in to do what I can't do on my own. See, embracing the way of change is not just about being willing to hear hard things. It's about being willing to recognize, I can't do this. Like Jesus put his finger on this thing and I I don't have the solution to that. Okay, yeah, thanks Jesus, I see that too. That's rough and that's a struggle and that needs to change and I don't know what to do. But embracing, embracing change isn't just about hearing the truth. It's about saying, okay, Jesus, I, I receive you as the way to help me change. I receive you, the God who is love, the God who is truth, to come in and give me the power, give me the grace, give me the strength to grow and change. God, would you do in me what I can't do myself? Embrace truth and love. This is what Paul talks about, and he tells us, in this context, it's, it's both about embracing Jesus, but it's about embracing community with one another. Because friends, community is a vital part of change. It's a vital part of the way to change. Ephesians chapter four, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, here's what you need to do to grow. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, all of us, were joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you all hear that? Growth and maturity comes from aligning with Jesus as the head of all things, the king of all things, and it involves a community of people who tell each other the truth, in love. Both things working together. Friends, many of us have settled for community, even in our church settings, that only has one of those, which means we don't have either. We settle for environments where there's love but no truth. Well, then that's not love. That's sentimentality. 
that's a bunch of emotionalism. It's, and, and often it even becomes manipulative because it sort of, it turns more into what am I getting out of this relationship because I'm not willing to risk hurting your feelings or losing this relationship in order to love you well in truth. And so we leave truth out and, and call it love and it's not love. Friends, there is a myth going around in much of the church today and is this idea that the people who come to Jesus as they are should be told it's okay to stay that way. And we stop being honest about sins that rip off and destroy us, about believing lies about the way we live, about, about the things we base our lives on. We don't call out greed. You know how much greed there is in the church? We don't call that out. Major portions of the church are not calling out wrong sexual behavior both inappropriate heterosexual behavior and inappropriate homosexual behavior. We won't be honest about that. We're not willing to say that is harmful for you. I'm not condemning you. I'm inviting you to experience the love of Jesus so you can be set free and change. But we don't want to say those hard things. And so under the guise of love, it's just a bunch of emotionalism because we don't love people enough to speak truth that'll help them. Because I'd rather not risk being looked at differently or being rejected. Or the other problem is we settle for truth and we leave out love. We do that in ways that are judgmental. Like I'm actually happy to tell you all the ways that you're wrong, but I don't love you at all. I'm just letting you know what's up. Bless your heart. And we just, we just speak truth in like ugly ways that push people away in judgmental ways. Or we do this. We sit around and we have our heads filled with knowledge about the Bible. And so we gather and it almost turns into like showing off how many scriptures I know and all the perspective I have on all these different scriptures. And, and let me really tell you what is exactly is going on in the book of Revelation. Set your watch. Okay, 2024 on January 7th, the white horse is showing up in the sky. And like we just, we sit around and we overanalyze all these details and we talk about information. Listen, we need right information. We need truth to help us change. We got to embrace that. But we need truth in the context of real relationship with God and real honest relationship with one another. When we have the right answers, but we leave out real loving relationship, that's how we get the news of things like, Ravi Zacharias, and we all go, how could that happen? If having the right information was enough, that wouldn't happen. We can have all the right information all day long, but do I have something real going on with Jesus? Am I having a real encounter with the God who loves me? And I'm opening up my life to him to invite him to change me and grow me. And do I do what he's given me? Do I take advantage of what he's giving me? Real relationship with his followers who also are broken, living in a community where we speak truth in love, where those two are married perfectly. And we only find that with Jesus. We only find that with him present in our lives personally and in our community. Guys, that's how we embrace the way of change. I want to close by leaving you with this thought. I want you to con- consider this, the Sermon on the Mount, not the whole thing right now, but just Jesus shows up and like the Sermon on the Mount is kind of his declaration of what the kingdom is and how we participate in it. I mean, there's more of it throughout all the gospels, but like he just lays out, this is what God's kingdom is like and how you have access. And I, I want you to consider two things from, from the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to consider how he closed it. He closed it by simply saying there's two ways to live. There's the wise builder and the foolish builder. The wise builder, he heard all the right information and he acted on it. He built his house on the rock. And when life got hard and the wind came and the rain came, his house stood. It was structurally sound because it was built on the right foundation. The other guy heard the right information, but he built his life on the sand. 
He wanted the beachside cottage, I guess. I don't know. He built his life on the sand. And it didn't make it. And then Jesus said, the wise builder is the one who hears what I'm saying and does it, cooperates with it. The foolish builder is the one who hears what I'm saying and doesn't. The way we embrace change is by learning to cooperate with truth. When truth shows up and speaks, we say yes. If that means I got to let something go, I let it go. If it means I need to move towards something, I move towards something. But I learn to cooperate with truth. I position myself to hear it, and then I purpose in myself to walk it out. That's the way I participate. Okay. We cooperate with truth. The second thing I want you to see from the Sermon on the Mount is the context. All of these people are following Jesus, and they're crowding around him. And so the scripture said, he goes up on the hill, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him. They sat down in intimate community and shared truth. And how did Jesus open the Sermon on the Mount? I want to read this to you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Everybody's gathered around. He says to them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know the foundation point? Humility. It's humility. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The change we need is available to us. It's available to us if I purpose to cooperate with truth and if I position myself to to be in humble community, speaking truth and love. Jesus has given us himself. We have an invitation, a loving invitation to follow him. He's honest with us that it's going to be tough and challenging at times. But his promise is that it's worth it. It's worth it. The growth and change he wants to do in us is worth it. So let's embrace him. Let's embrace change. Let's allow ourselves to be changed by truth and love. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you love us enough to speak the truth to us. God, we thank you that that you don't just blast us with truth. God, we thank you that you also don't just tell us everything is all right when it's not, but that you lean in close, you are with us, you are inviting us to experience you and your kingdom in our lives. And God, like a skilled surgeon, you want to come bring healing and growth in us. God, I pray that we would be the kind of people that could recognize the ways that we avoid your truth, the ways that we, we make excuses, and that instead we'd be willing to count the cost of change and embrace what you have for us. Embrace you in real, loving, truth-filled relationship. And God, that we would take the risk to walk in humble community with each other, speaking the truth in love. Thank you, God, that you do for us what we can't do for ourselves. You speak truth, and then you give us strength to change. God, would you equip us to listen and respond? It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen.